Hi, this is uh, Bookbindish Podcast, and today our guest uh, joins us from New York. This is uh, Richard Minsky, a bookbinder, book artist, uh, bookbinding teacher, and, uh, well, lots of other things more. Uh, founder of uh, uh, the Center of Book Arts in, in New York and Manhattan, and uh, we're, we, we, we hope to discuss lots of things uh, from the past, lots of things from, from the current moment, uh, including NFT books in, or NFTs for books and uh, something else. We'll see how it goes. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, Stefan. Hi, Pavel. Uh, yeah, and Pavel, my co-host, as usually John joins us from Moscow. Hi there. Hi, everyone. Well... Let's let's dive in. <laughs> How it all began? Could you perhaps first set uh, the, the scene for us? Because uh, your childhood was what early sixties, New York, oh, right? Yeah. Well, okay. And uh, let's start my childhood in uh, junior high school. It was a good time. Let's say that's nineteen fifty-eight. I'm in junior high school. So yeah, I'm born in the late 40s. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and I'm still. Uh, and uh, my first class in junior high school that I was assigned was Graphic Art Shop with Mr. Caputo. Joseph Caputo was the teacher. And he was an inspirational teacher. And those, I was 11 years old, and that's when I learned hand-type composition I learned to hand feed a, a 10 by 15 motorized Chandler and Price platen press, the basics of dry point etching, uh, half-ass book binding and, uh, and the like. And uh, that stayed with me so that um, by the time I was a- So is it, is it an official term, half-ass book, book binding or? Yeah, yes, uh, that, that was the, that, uh, that's the official junior high school uh, uh, name for it anyway, and uh, <laughs> I um I loved it anyway. I it was I took other you know shop was normal. It's not done anymore. But in those days, they started you in junior high school with a print shop in particular because New York was the printing capital of the world, and they wanted to see who was going to be good enough to go to the high school of printing because you, they needed to supply printers to the printing trades. And uh, although I wasn't um, inclined to be uh, an employee as a printer, I did love it. And so uh, my, uh, and when I was, was the, my senior year there, which was the ninth grade, uh, and I was 13, I bought a small platen press, a five by eight Kelsey press and six cases of used foundry type and started a printing business with my homeroom class as a 15% commission sales team so everybody in the class made money and I had work. Who did you sell it to? What was the market like? Who were your competitors? I had, I had no competitors uh, because uh, these kids would sell printing to their parents. So I would do stationery and, uh, you know, uh, one of the students' fathers was a piano teacher, for example. So uh, I would print the invitations and the programs for the piano recitals of his students. Uh, a local um, clothing store, uh, Fella Fashions. Uh, she had uh, me print twice a year her clearance sale postcards, a thousand postcards. This is with a press that, you know, you pull the handle down like that 
I had a muscle here. They called me the one-armed Popeye in junior high school because this muscle was like that. <laughs> you print a thousand of those, you know, you... Uh... Yeah, yeah. But that was, it was job printing. Uh, but I was, I also, I loved the Ditto machine. And uh, uh, at that time, also, I joined the Junior Astronomy Club and I became the production editor because nobody else wanted to have the mimeograph machine or nobody else's parents would let them have the mimeograph machine in their house. My parents were dead at that time. So uh, my grandmother was fine with her if I had a mimeograph machine in the house. It didn't bother her at all. So I had my printing press and the mimeograph where I printed the junior astronomy news every other month. That's my first printing press. Okay. The, the one, can you, do you see my little hand here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the one that was under the Christmas tree when I was about 10. And this is the one I bought, the, uh, my first real printing press I got when I was 13. That was one of the, an early thing I printed. I, I, when I realized, you know, back in those days, now everybody has a printing press on their desk. <laughs> Printed things mean nothing anymore. But in those days, nobody had, a, I mean, I, I never understood why everybody didn't have a printing press in their apartment, because of course I had one and a mimeograph, you know, that was normal. Uh, but everybody believed everything. So I was able to take rexograph stencils like ditto machines, you know, spirit duplicators and make forged bus passes when I was in junior high school for my friends so that people could get on the bus for free. And I made myself this working press pass because I realized that if you had a yellow thing shaped like a shield that was sealed in plastic and said working press, nobody would get close enough to read the details it was just stuff left over from a junior astronomy club invitation that I had printed. And that's how I was able to get that close to Lyndon Johnson. And uh, I was the first hand that he shook when he got out of his limo because I had the working press and I had my four by five camera. So I looked very official. And that was my first year at Brooklyn College and he was visiting Brooklyn. So, anyway, so, so the, Jay Rossman, the uh, curator at Yale, thought that would be a good thing to put in my 50 year retrospective exhibition near the beginning as an example of how I approach book art. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I recently had a big problem recruiting kids uh, uh, to a little workshop uh, for introductory book binding. So I should have told a story just like this one and I will next time. <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, that's the card that I actually use to make that um, I joined the junior astronomy club when I was in junior high school because I was interested in astronomy. And I went to the first meeting. They used to have big name astronomers like from Princeton and everything come because the club had been in existence since 1929. And they met in this uh, uh, lecture hall at New York University. So I went there and here was this famous astronomer giving a talk to seven teenagers. So that was my first time there. I said. How come there's only seven people? This is such a great talk. And they, they say, well, nobody comes. So I said, I've got a printing press. I'll print 300 free guest lecture tickets for the next lecture. We'll send it to the 150 high schools in New York to the chairman of the science department. And we'll tell them to give them to their two best students. And that way there's competition to get them instead of nobody you know, wanting them. And the, ne the next uh, lecture, there were 300 people in the, in the lecture hall. <laughs> yeah, that's a good solution. <laughs> so you've clearly always, always known how to promote your work. 
and uh, and other people won. and other people <laughs> yeah. well that was still when the when something being printed meant something i mean now if you want you know people to do something you just make it as a zoom session and you post it on a, a a, you know, a place where 30,000 people are going to see it and you post a link and uh, then you have to turn people away. Uh, I yes. think you're uh, exaggerating. Uh, uh, the, the market is so oversaturated with virtual things that actually real things uh, became to, uh, to be more, uh, more valuable. I think a, a good poster often sells the show more than uh, a good name does. Well, uh, before the age of COVID, uh, when people actually would actually go somewhere, it's but it's coming back. Yeah, I hope so. At least uh, that's something we, we want to discuss uh, during our uh, uh, next live stream uh, next uh, Wednesday. Well, uh, for 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 the for the moment when we air this uh, uh, this talk with uh, Richard, uh, it will be uh, some past <laughs> live stream that happened a couple of months before or something like but that. Then but then it, it might be the dead stream and it can do it as a memorial. Well, <laughs> I hope it wouldn't be that one yet. <laughs> So uh, you you started more more as a printer uh, than a, than a bookbinder and bookmaker. Uh, when when did this when did this shift happen and and why? Oh, um, when I added bookbinding was um, I would say in uh, when I was in college I got more interested in bookbinding. I got some introductory books on leather bookbinding and I started uh, making some uh, bookbindings uh, that weren't very good. But uh, what happened was I, I was going to originally be an astrophysicist, you know, that was my interest. But um, I did great the first year, but the second year I had an auto accident where my head, I ran into one of the, well, a truck turned in front of me that was carrying like 30 crushed cars and had this big I-beam as a bumper and on a rainy day made a quick turn in front of me and I ran into its uh, I-beam my head hit the steering wheel and I had permanent brain damage since then. So uh, my, sec my uh, sophomore year in college, I had a hard time focusing on things and I left physics and I didn't like the physics teacher anyway, he, uh, he was boring. Uh, my first year physics teacher was great. He would do demonstrations where like, you know, lightning would jump across his arms and, you know, and he wouldn't tell us how it was done. He said, if you wanna know, go do the homework and read the book. So it was a very great way to teach. The, the, the next year, the guy wrote partial differential equations on the blackboard all the time. And, you know, uh, that was not very interesting. So, but the, that came in handy because I switched my major to economics. And I went into theater and uh, I, I continued on a music. I was a, I started playing the violin when I was eight. And all through elementary school and junior high and high school, I uh, played in the school orchestras, classical music. And... Um, and I sang in the chorus in junior high. I was a soprano as a kid, but you know, when my voice changed, uh, I became a second bass, the lower bass. So they put me in the chorus because I, I, I could sing those notes. And uh, so, and then in, um, uh, in college, I um, also sang in the chorus at Brooklyn College. It was a great chorus, got to sing like the B minor mass and the Mozart Requiem and stuff like that. And then in graduate school, I stayed, I went to Brown University in economics. So I graduated in economics. Uh, and after doing all this other shit, I, I would do whatever would keep me from going to classes. So uh, I, you know, I would sing in the chorus. I would be, I was in a reader's theater touring group. 
and I was a saber, I was a varsity saber fencer. So all of those things excuse you from going to class. So I spent most of college uh, doing extracurricular activities. Uh, so anyway, when I was at Brown, they gave me, I, I did well anyway. I, I, uh, you know, I graduated with honors in economics and uh, Brown gave me a fellowship in economics. And I didn't particularly like their economics department either. It was really the bastion of capitalism. And um, so after a year of that, I took my master's from Brown and went to the New School for Social Research, which was the bastion of Marxism, which turned out to use all the same textbooks. They all used Henderson and Quant's microeconomic theory that, and, and taught that profit maximization was the goal of the entrepreneur. My father had been a not-for-profit entrepreneur. He founded a thing called Religious News Service. It still exists. It's where I get my news. It's called Religion News Service. You can go online and find it. But um, uh, so I came from a family of not-for-profit and entrepreneurship is probably why I started the Center for Book Arts. You know, just, uh, you know, that's... Uh, you know, following my father's footsteps of not profit. Uh, on. So that didn't fit in with economic theory either at Brown or the New School. The Marxists also thought profit maximization was the goal. They just disagreed on how to divide up the profit. So, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, so I, I, I gave up on all of that. I did my PhD work at the New School. But while I was at Brown, the week before classes started, I was wandering around the campus to orient myself and I had a dorm in the Graduate Center, but just down the block was the Anne Mary Brown Memorial. And in there were 2000 Incanabula. So I'm in there like, you know, with this, um, you know, book binding porn and just uh, spending way too much time for a casual visitor in a place that nobody else walked in while I was there. <laughs> that, but that's beautiful. <laughs> what else do you need? <laughs> but after about an hour there, uh, this guy comes up to me, says, I'm the curator here. What are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I'm looking at the bindings. I said, I love book bindings. He said, oh, you should go see Dan Knowlton, a university book binder in basement B of the Rockefeller Library. So I walked over to the Rockefeller Library and met Dan Knowlton. This is all before classes started. And I fell in love immediately. The smell of it, what he was, he was, you know, like an old family that came over on the Mayflower, you know, it, it, uh, he was like, he's the real thing, you know, and uh, he had just, he had finished all the restoration of the Anne Mary Brown collection of Incanabular and was working on one of the other collections at the time, but I said, oh, I'd love to learn from you, Well, he taught an evening class in bookbinding uh, at Brown. Here, I have, um, this is not on any of the websites, but you can see, there is my Brown University A in bookbinding from Dan Knowlton. So that's, so that's what I did. Uh, and uh, I, I cut classes in economics, which made the faculty very grateful. The second semester I registered for four, in four entire classes, that's a full semester of independent study and research and spend my time in the bindery. And I had a carol there where I, I mean, they had great books. Uh, my interest in as an undergraduate was the history of economic thought, and it was a great teacher at Brooklyn College of that. And nobody taught it at Brown, but the library had the 1776 edition of the Wealth of Nations with the signature of the Minister of Finance of France in it, you know, and uh, of the time. You know, so, I mean, that's when I really got into the vibes of books and getting a sense of the people who had held them. So I would read this book transformed to 18th century Paris and see it through different eyes of what it meant then. And that made me say, well, what did he know? 
So I didn't, I hadn't learned Valras and Kenet and the French physiocrats that preceded Adam Smith. And so I took out my uh, Dictionnaire La Rousse and uh, uh, got the, because it hadn't been translated into English or they didn't have an English translation. So I was able to, I had studied French for a few years and, uh, and all that. So uh, I, I was able to understand where Adam Smith was coming from and how he was different from the physiocrats. So uh, being in the library to Carol and not going to class really helped me understand the history of economic thought while I was learning bookbinding from Dan Knowlton. So here I can show you. Um, so that's, that kind of brings you up to uh, something. I'm not quite sure what, but um, somewhere, this was the first book, full leather book binding I did in 1968 as a student of Dan Knowlton. And the way he taught was first thing you learned was leather book binding, uh, tight back, raised cords, laced in boards. Uh, after that, he taught double raised cords, then sewing on tapes, and then case binding. So we learned book binding pretty much in the order that it evolved from about the uh, 13th century or thereabouts forward. Uh, then, uh, then we learned, and here's a, the next leather binding I did was the first uh, tool binding I did. Uh, I still have this set of Grolier tools that I did that with. The book was uh, Douglas McMurtry's History of the Book. That was the title of the book. This was the first uh, uh, tool binding you made. That was the first tool binding I made. So everybody is just uh, being, being uh, really jealous at the moment uh, when they see uh, the, the first uh, uh, tooled book that you've made. And <laughs> that's the one you showed a moment ago. <laughs> okay, well, that, that, that was still 68. Anyway, the, the, the following semester, I did this one because um, he taught then uh, the French method of onlay where you uh, paste your leather onto a piece of craft paper Pair it from the back until all you see is the grain, then cut out your pieces uh, and paste them onto the book and press them in and then wet the paper and peel it off. Uh, that's how these, well, this uh, piece in the middle here, this black wasn't part of my design. This is for the Georgics of Virgil. Uh, it was a, uh, a nice uh, depression era, 1931 edition from Cheshire House that I had bought that had no covers on it. Because the great thing as a bookbinding student is you get beautiful books that have no covers, pretty cheap. And uh, that's what the Cook's Voyage had been. And uh, that, that was, you know, Captain Cook's Voyage, the original edition. So this one I designed since it was the Georgics, I thought I'd put some flowers in the corner and how, you know, related a little bit to the uh, subject matter. And I blind tooled the title in the middle of the cover but I got the leather too wet and the tool too hot and burned the leather. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh dear, what do I do? Um, and Dan said, oh, he said, fill in your tooling with auto body filler, sand it down, then design an onlay to go on top of it and then tool on your onlay. So I took these same drawer handle tools that I had used for the corners and um, it took me three months to pair a piece of leather with a French knife until I got it with no holes in the middle. You know, uh, so that's how I learned to sharpen a knife and to pair leather was doing this particular onlay right here. 
And then I tooled it in gold because, you know, uh, uh, I figured I would look better on the black. So it actually made a better design. His notion was, if you um, mess it up, I will try to keep my language uh, appropriate to an audience here. Uh, <laughs> Thank then, you. <laughs> um, uh, use that to make your design better. So that was my third full leather binding. That's that's a great lesson. And uh, that's something that we discuss quite quite often on our podcast. That, uh, uh, and I, I saw just, just a few days ago, uh, uh, somebody com commented on one, one of my posts. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember about what, but about some perfect bindings. And uh, there, there, there started a discussion that uh, uh, well, one, one of the most important things for, for bookbinders to learn is how to fix their mistakes and uh, to learn from their mistakes and uh, make new mistakes and uh, <laughs> learn how to fix them. And uh, sometimes when you, when you are fixing mistakes, you can, can make even more uh, beautiful and uh, well-designed binding. So that's, that's a great illustration that you showed us just a moment ago. That's absolutely true. Uh, my, I have a motto for that that I follow, which is I try not to make the same mistake three times in a row. And the fourth time I try not to be too hard on myself. <laughs> I think it's a, it also helps not to have uh, too precise a picture in, uh, of the result in your mind. Because if you want to do exactly something like, uh, like it is in your mind, you, you'll probably, you probably won't succeed. You need to have this flexibility. I want something of that sort and the vision changes and so does the work. I, I love this process so much. Uh, do, you still, do you still make mistakes? Like, is it every time, every second time? <laughs> do, I, do I ever get it right? Is, you know, the, uh, my, my biggest tool is the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, I, 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 next week I'm starting my... Uh, uh, no, many a session. I've been for forty years. I've been uh, doing workshops in uh, critique uh, for artists, for curators, for librarians, for dealers, for for writers, and uh, where people learn to self-critique as well as critique other people's work. And so I have, you know, uh, I used to do them live. I, uh, last year I started doing this by Zoom, getting people from all over the world, from United Arab Emirates and Brazil. It's, it's Norway. It's amazing how that changes everything. But one of the subjects I go over is uh, called garbage or archive. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, and I, you know, before, you know, it's always a question of, because, you know, my archive is at Yale. And so there's a question of every year I have to bring my process materials. And that to me includes all my mistakes or enough of my mistakes that show something that I've learned from that when you see the finished product, you see, what I did wrong to get there, because the idea of an archive is if someone is going to bother using your archive, they're studying what you do and what your process is. So uh, it's always the question of, does this go in the garbage? Uh, now, the third or fourth time in a row, of course, it goes in the garbage. But, you know, it's uh, uh, but, uh, there's a but that's a real question for um, uh, practitioners of anything to think about whether they, you know, if, if they're interested. I, I was always a hoarder or a you know, of uh, everything. And uh, so I, I, you know, that's why I have these things from my childhood still, because I just didn't throw things out as long as I had room for them. That's why I ended up, that's what happened with my archive. That's why Yale got it, because 
I had all this shit up, pardon me, up in the uh, attic. And uh, when our kid was getting to be, uh, you know, above a certain age, Barbara says, well, I got to put Samantha's Barbie doll somewhere. Would you get your crap out of the attic? Uh, so I, you know, put it up for sale and, you know, sold it to Yale because I, you know, I had to do something with it because I didn't want to lose it and throw it in the garbage. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's that's something uh, that, that that's that's a question uh, that's a question I, I often ask uh, myself because uh, uh, of course of course when you have uh, uh, how do you say it I I iterative process iteration process uh, with your designs uh, for example where I'm uh, making some new tools or something like that experimenting with with designs of course you have you go through lots of different versions and uh, I try to save at least some of them for the future for my personal reference to understand how the uh, uh, which processes I went through, how how it evolved, uh, but on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I see that sometimes people, I don't know, uh, ten years after beginning some uh, some uh, project or something, uh, start to uh, be become quite sad when they when they don't have any archives from the beginning and they can can see how it all began and uh, because they didn't. Uh, uh, Make this uh, their goal from from right from the start to save at least some elements of their creative process and uh, well uh, I guess there is some you know hoarders uh, um, some hoarding here <laughs> and, and I guess I'm I'm a hoarder as well uh, in a way but uh, uh, there should be some hoarding in in your life probably probably <laughs> well if, if you have any success at anything it's it, it's best. Uh to uh, keep track of your process. For one thing, uh, it helps keep your ego in check. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, that, that helps a lot. Uh, could, could, you uh, could you tell a bit about the, uh, the next big uh, sh uh, shift in your art, uh, which is shifting from just making books to making book art and book art that is a social commentary i understand it was the late 60s early 70s yeah. so there was probably a lot in the air but what moved you to do to go there oh horace callan uh i would say horace callan the same way that uh joseph caputo got me started and dan knowlton taught me book binding it was uh horace callan i would say who turned me into an artist he was one of the founders of the new school and how I discovered him while I was for two years a graduate student in economics at the graduate faculty, which had its own building uh, in New York City. I was walking down the hall on the way to a, a class and this, I see this figure uh, floating, streaming down the hallway with uh, long white hair and a cape and a bowler and high button shoes. And this is in 1970. Um, and a black cane with a silver top, you know. Uh, and I ran into the nearest office and said, "Who is that? I want to take his <laughs> class." Because that's why I always that's that's why I was in all these different things in college. And uh, the way I took classes uh, as an undergraduate was I would go to registration and I would look for who is teaching from their own book, and I didn't care what it was. That's how I got into Reader's Theater. I saw. I, I saw Melvin White teaching from the Reader's Theater Handbook that he wrote. And so, because I think if someone's teaching from their own book, they won't be boring. It was that one boring physics teacher that made me never want to be bored again. You know? but, but, so I see this guy walking down. So he, he also taught you a lesson. 
he told me a big lesson, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and if it wasn't for him, I'd probably have been a physicist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what a loss. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the partial differential equations did come useful in economics, and they also come in useful in bookbinding and in everything else I do, because the whole concept of having many variables and hold all but one of them constant and just vary that one thing. So you see its effect independently of the other variables was a very big lesson. So, you know, there, there were other lessons that I learned, you know, besides change your major, you know, uh, it was, uh, but so I'm, I see this guy, I go in the office and she says, well, that's Horace Callan. He said, uh, she said, if you want to take his class, you have to register now for next semester because he's retiring. He's 88 years old. And so I said, OK, I'll take his class. What is it? She said, the philosophy of art. So all of a sudden now that's half of how I became an artist. So I took his, I mean, I just there were all these philosophy students in there. Their heads were down there taking notes. I could not take my eyes off him because he would levitate. And his head would float up in the air. At least that's the way it looked to me. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it, it, given the other variables of what 1970 was like, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not always also in the. Uh, and you so you talk about making it political. I was also in a guerrilla theater group protesting things like the Kent State massacre and you know and other stuff like that. We were doing street theater, you know, what was called agitprop, you know, in in the uh, 1930s times, but. How, how very Marxist. You know, well, duh, you know. So it was, uh, uh, you know, we would go and, uh, we, I, I'm not going to go into it, we would do some heavy duty stuff. Uh, but uh, the, the key thing is, I got to read uh, the classics from like, you know, Tolstoy's What is Art and Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual and Art and uh, Stanislavski on the Art of the Stage and how you create your creative circle. and. You know all of the the greats of uh, you know of the philosophy of art, and that got me thinking. But he was great. Here's how he started the first class. He says, "What's a creation?" He said, "When you take a shit, it wasn't there before. It's a creation," and that's on that he built uh, uh, his theory of aesthetic. He'd written like 37 books on this, you know. But um, he, he it was, at the same time I was earning a living because I was a bookbinder, I had gotten a job uh, through some nepotism of being the bookbinder to the Joseph H. Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, which was then being built in Washington, but was in storage in a warehouse in New York. So I would go there once a week and I would get all their books that needed rebinding or fixing or repair. And I would take them to my apartment and uh, I would bind them, you know, and fix them. And, I would read them. So I read a lot of art books while I was doing that at the same time as I was taking this uh, philosophy of art class. And so I got that education and then it got to be just magazines. I told them to take them. I read a few, I got the idea, but, and that was political also. I mean, that was in, you know, magazines like uh, Art Forum from the era when they were talking about when uh, Rockefeller's Mother's Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, would do Jackson Pollock catalogs that were distributed in Eastern Europe as an example of America's freedom of expression. So I got to understand the relationships of you know, books, art, uh, politics, uh, propaganda, and how those things all work together. And so with all that, 
uh, I told him to take the magazines to a commercial magazine binder, you know, and, and do that. I didn't really want to do them because also their photographer was a junkie and wasn't showing up at work. So, uh, you know, by me, by a junkie, a heroin addict. And so uh, they needed a photographer. Well, I'd been a you know, photographer. I was my high school photographer for the newspaper and all. That's another story. There's many stories. But I knew how to take a photograph. So I took the civil service test and became a G7 museum assistant, the only job I've ever had. I've otherwise been self-employed my entire life. So I'm sort of unemployable because of many things. But I got the job and I photographed 2000 paintings and sculptures. So I had to go into in the warehouse. I have to take the stuff out and you know set it up and photograph it and put it back. So I got to handle all this art and it started rubbing off on my hands. So at the same time, I was learning about the theory of art and the philosophy of it and aesthetics and buying the books and reading about it. I was also touching a lot of it. And so, uh, you know, uh, there, there was all of that going on. And so that changed me from being a book binder and printer to a book artist. And it was in 1971 that I sold my first work to a, uh, a book dealer. Uh, I'm not a book dealer, I'm sorry to say that. Uh, to, and it wasn't a book dealer at all. It was to Alan Stone, who had the Alan Stone Gallery. He was an art dealer. I didn't yet know about book dealers at that time. And I'm kind of sorry that I didn't stay in that other world because it pays much better. You know, so I so I, I did that, and then by uh, I had a show. I joined the Guild of Book Workers. I had what they used to be at the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and they had a single exhibit case, so you got to have a one-person show there. So I think it was 1973 or thereabouts, somewhere around there, that I had my first exhibition. I suppose I could maybe able. To, I don't know if I can show you anything from that. Sorry, sorry. Which uh, I I want to return just just a moment back. Uh, which one paid better, uh, art art dealer award or or uh, book dealer world? Oh no! Well, at that time I was in the art dealer world. So my first yeah. real exhibition was at the Zabriskie Gallery on Fifty Seventh Street. Whoa! Uh, and that was in nineteen seventy four, and uh, then um, and I and I had a show at Alan Stone's in nineteen eighty one. And I had another exhibition at Zabriskie in 1988. And I had my exhibition at the Louis Mizell Gallery in Soho in 2002. That's where I showed my Bill of Rights. We can get into all that you know, when we get up to that point. But in terms of what you were asking about the transition, uh, that was how I transitioned to a book artist. And to me, I was a book artist, so I wasn't... Now, I identified as a book artist, but there was no such thing as book art. So I said, I was working for Mr. Lerner, photograph, Mr. Lerner, Abram Lerner was the director of the Hirshhorn Museum. And they commissioned me to do like, you know, a gift book, you know, with inlaid stuff for Joe Hirshhorn for his birthday. You know, he was, he was, everybody was alive then. Nobody's alive anymore. But so Mr. Lerner was in the um, warehouse one day. And I said, Mr. Lerner, I said, I've been through thousands of works here you don't have a single book that's a work of art in your museum and he said well he said if you want books to be recognized as art he said you're going to have to start an organization to promote it like start a nonprofit organization and put on exhibitions and that way you'll get museums interested in books as art and that was the that sat that was 1971 and it wasn't until well, I left the country shortly. Then I left the country in April that year. I, I moved to France. I gave because Nixon, you know, and so uh, I didn't really want to be in that country. Uh, so 
uh, I, I moved, I, first I went to England and then to Paris and I set up my tent in the Bois de Boulogne. And uh, then I uh, got, I, I brought my fiddle and a tent and a, a backpack. Uh, and then I went to the American Center on Boulevard Raspail where I started meeting other musicians. And I was in three bands playing the electric violin. Two of them were in the Festival de Montparnasse in uh, 71. That was fun, big band jazz, uh, you know, folk rock, blues, that kind of stuff. So anyway, I came back because I realized that I liked the freedom of thought in New York uh, that did not exist elsewhere, in, like in Europe, uh, because the tie there to a thousand years or more of civilization had a group think that um, wasn't working for me. And uh, so I said, I think one thing that we have in America that they don't have here is a lot of land. So I can probably find a little more space to be away from whatever the horrors of government might uh, portend. So well, not, not, not in New York though. Well, I had a, I, I still had the, the apartment I'd grown up in, which was a six room, two bath apartment that was, you know, like uh, $99 a month, you know, rent controlled. So, uh, you know, at that time. So uh, that, that, that was considered space, you know, I find, I mean, uh, that, that's not an e wasn't an easy space to find. You know, in Paris, I, after I moved out of my tent, I was living in a house with a bunch of other artists and like mimes and, you know, different kinds of things like that out in um, uh, the outskirts of Paris. And, but which was, what I loved about Paris is I would go down to the corner, to the nearest restaurant and, after I ate there two or three times, he says, you've been here a few times. It's all in French. He says, uh, what do you, what, what do you, who are you, what do you do? I said, I'm an artist. And he said, well, let me, what kind of art do you do? Are you a surrealist or, or a cubist? You know, because, you know, that's, you know, the French. And so I said, well, none of those, but I, I said, I can show you something. And so I showed him some like kind of abstract expressionist things I had, you know, painted. And, um, he said, you, you're an artist, you can't pay for your, he said, you have to eat here every dinner unless you have an excuse and you can't pay because you're an artist. I mean, that's France, you know, that, that, that's not, <laughs> that, that is not, that was not America in those days, nor will it ever be, you know, and said, if you're an artist, why don't you get a job or, you know, or, or something. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's, so anyway, well, maybe, 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 maybe America will, will change, you know, there is still some chance for that. <laughs> well, you know, America is, uh, has got a lot of things going on simultaneously. There's that, you know, and, uh, but uh, anyway, I came back, I borrowed $5,000 from the United States Small Business Administration and opened a storefront book bindery print shop and art gallery in Forest Hills, Queens in 1972 and ran that for two years. And I was able to pay the bills, kind of, but never really made any money. It was not easy. I realized that if I started a not-for-profit, I could make more money because in addition to earning income, there could be grants and stuff like that. So uh, I decided to start the Center for Book Arts because that idea had been planted in my brain by Mr. Lerner. And uh, so I said, okay, uh, so first I, first I set, sent out um, a call for apprentices and um, apprenticeship in book arts, I called it. And uh, nobody would, there was no phrase book arts at that time that anybody was using in 73 or thereabouts that meant anything like what we think of as book art today. 
Um, and there was no concept, but I had friends like uh, Barton Benish who did these sculptural books, like, you know, with the nails through them as, as a censored book and Stella Waitskin who did the cast resin books and Marty Greenbaum who did these books glued open with bottle caps and cigarette butts and trash in them. You know, this is my idea of book art as well as limited edition printed books. I knew printers, book binders and all that. And of course I was in the Guild of Book Workers too. So I wanted to put all that together. And there were artist books, you know, then there were the, the artists who were making books that were uh, made on Xerox machines and offset printed where they were visual literature. And that was another form of book art. So I wanted to put all of these in one place because those books were being made pretty badly and they were like no craftsmanship. And then these people who were doing well-crafted books were really boring, you know? And uh, so uh, I, I really wanted to put a place where uh, they could see each other's work, that the people who were doing exciting books could see things that were well-made and the people who were making books well could see exciting books and mix and match. And if they didn't want to embody those things themselves, they could collaborate where someone, you know, who wanted a better made book than they could and someone who wasn't inspired, you know, that way wanted to work on. So people started doing collaborations of, of things. So the idea was to make a collaborative space where people could uh, be excited by each other's work. And I started putting on exhibitions and classes. The first two years I taught all the classes in bookbinding and printing, but I couldn't afford a teacher, you know, to hire a teacher. But fortunately it was 1974. So it was like the height of the recession or the depths of the recession. So I was able for like $312.50 to rent a month to rent the storefront, which I, the reason the Center for Book Arts happened was I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just rambling on these tangents. I talk in tangents. So, you know, you can stop me anytime, you know, and just- Well, it's, it's perfect. Okay. So, <laughs> you, anyway. you, 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 you draw the, the, the picture with, you know, with this, this, this uh, white brush strokes and- <laughs> by, by, by the way, sorry, I, I really, uh, I'm afraid I'll forget. The way you described the situation uh, that led you to find, uh, founding uh, the center, how uh, the books, arts and book binding are disconnected and how one seems to be not really art and the other seems to be not really well made and etc 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 many people today would say the situation is not that different in fact many of our guests said as much certainly about the disconnect not about the quality but about the disconnect of the communities that designer book binding uh, uh, book arts and book binding proper all seem uh, to ogle each other from their own corners slightly aggressively and they don't really connect there aren't that many collaborations um, uh, is it no longer your experience do you see do you still see those collaborations growing around oh you? yeah they're happening every day at the center for book arts you see it all the time and uh, i believe you'll find that also at the minnesota now that was there was no center for book arts then um, you know, and then, well, we, we can, well, can, well, well, I can just diverge for a minute into what happened um, was uh, Barbara Lazarus Metz, who was a member of the Center for Book Arts, who lived in Chicago, this is around 1980 or so, uh, came to New York and said, I want to start one of these in Chicago. So, you know, I ran her through the business model because I understood the institutional economics. I was able to create a, a survivable organization. So I had a m income and expense and, you know, I had all of the elements of what it takes to make a successful operation. 
So it didn't take more than two or three hours to communicate that to someone who had an entrepreneurial inclination in this field. So she started Artist Bookworks in Chicago. It eventually became the Columbia College Chicago Center for Book and Paper Arts, which then, because they went institutional and joined a university, was defunct by the university, which is why the Center for Book Arts remains independent. You don't want to become a tool of an institutional structure that can eliminate you. Uh, but that's what happened. Fortunately, after it went defunct after she died, so she didn't get to see that happen. But, uh, and then um, Jim Sitter came from uh, Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Annabelle Lee brought her, him into the Center for Book Arts and uh, similar thing. He wanted to do that in Minneapolis, the same three hour, this is, this is the income you know, model. He was a great entrepreneur. And in Minneapolis, there was, you know, not much competition in the small arts organization like New York. So he got three times the space that we had in a year. Did a fabulous job. Minnesota Center for Book Arts is still booming. And then, um, you know, and Mary started the Pacific, the um, um, San Francisco Center based on the same model. And you know, now there's dozens, if not hundreds of them everywhere, the London Center for Book Arts. So it really, and you know, uh, they, they, the only distinction is Center for Book Arts is the only Center for Book Arts Everything else is the Minnesota Center for Book. Every, everything else is required to have a modifier, you know. But uh, I didn't trademark it as a, um, you know, uh, a franchise. I thought it should be independent to every location, and it would work a lot better that way. Because I, I, you know, I was an artist in a field that didn't exist. So um, I mean, I'm still somewhat of a failure as an economist since I've created a huge amount of supply in that field between the Center for Book Arts and all the other teachers. Um, I know um, uh, Bob Rubin, who had a big book arts, has a big, had a big book arts collection that's being distributed. But um, he, he traced back all of the teachers um, in all of the other centers and all the students had, like 95% of them came in, in one way or the other from a Center for Book Arts uh, background teacher, this or that. But having created all of the the supply, I didn't create enough demand, which is one of the reasons I'm focusing more on criticism and the Center for Book Arts is doing the book art review now. And I'm on the uh, book art theory committee of the College Book Art Association because one of the problems is for collectors. Now, Pavel, you talk about the book binders and the book artists, but we can lump the bookbinders and book artists together and put all the other artists in a separate thing if you want to start getting like where the money is, you know? So, I mean, there's still that. And that's one of the reasons is that in the wider field of art, there is a large amount of critical methodology and critical theory that helps to establish, besides the fact that there's an art world and a lot of insider art stuff that goes on there. Um, and that, you brought up the Swiss vaults in a recent session. And uh, I thought what was interesting about that is those vaults contain NFTs. And you wanted to put uh, NFTs in the subject, we can get to that later. But I look at the Matisse in a vault, the Brancusi in a vault that never sees the light of day and the ownership that changes hands, that is an NFT. It might not be on the blockchain. It might be through Sotheby's or Christie's or through a bill of sale and a private transaction, 
but it still is a non-fungible token and its meaning has become even less as art as there are images out there of it and the physical object with its magical vibration stays in a dark vault, which is about as bright as the blockchain. Well, I wanted to add, add a bit uh, to the discussion of uh, uh, disconnect between uh, uh, book arts and uh, book binding. Uh, I, and I know that we, we already moved uh, moved on a bit from we, we, this we'll topic. We'll come back to Bleecker Street later on and why the but, book arts was at 15 Bleecker Street. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, I just uh, recently uh, published our first uh, Spanish podcast uh, just, just yesterday from, from my perspective. And once again, probably it will be uh, some time ago from, from the perspective of, of the viewer of this podcast. But uh, the, the topic also was discussed there. And uh, there also, uh, at least in some languages and in some cultures, there, there also is this linguistic barrier between book arts and uh, book binding. Because as, as far as I found out, as far as I know now, uh, in, in Spanish language, uh, there is no uh, term for fine binding. And uh, uh, there is, uh, uh, I, I, should, I should read it, it's Encuadernaciones Artistica, Artisticas. So uh, it's artistic bindings, but uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's an umbre umbrella that covers everything. Design binding, fine binding, artist books, so everything. And uh, uh, there, is th there is this sort of miscommunication in, in the Spanish part of the uh, uh, bookish world, uh, how to separate all these uh, uh, things. And uh, as, as far as I remember, I, I discussed with somebody else, I'm not sure uh, which language was that, maybe, maybe Spanish as well, that, uh, oh no, it, it was Italian. We, we talked with a book conservator from, from Italy uh, uh, we, we talked with uh, uh, Paolo, Paolo, we talked with Paolo Fagnola, and uh, uh, she told us that there is no difference in Italian language between uh, restoration and conservation. So there is this mix up as well. Uh, so sometimes there is not only, you know, cultural or ideological barrier between these uh, uh, fields, there is also a linguistic barrier, which is maybe even more important because if you can't communicate things, you can you it's hard to you know to 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 bring this them to this world to make them real so yeah <laughs> and and this is probably where uh, a, a theory critical theory of uh, book binding and book arts uh, should step in because there is no common framework uh, at least not common to uh, to all the actors what 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 is your take on it uh, should there be or is there an appropriate theoretical apparatus to discuss book arts and uh, and book binding and everything together or are they separate separate things for you oh uh, uh, everything is uh, there are many critical apparati uh, uh, for this in uh, in my critique workshop I, I generally take three or four or five of them. I take the Johanna Drucker model, which is how a librarian or a curator will look at it, which is pretty much a metadata point of view in which you examine all the different elements of it. I, um, I can give you the links to you know, the essays. Uh, there's the Gary Frost uh, methodology, which is about the haptics of it. He looks at it as an engineer would. Um, and uh, there's my own, which is uh, what Yale called the material meets metaphor methodology. Uh, in which I look at the physical object as a material, like um, uh, it might be stone, you know, 
uh, or it might be paint, you know, and uh, I look at the image that it is. I mean, it's a, it's a painting of a girl dancing ballet, you know, I'm sure you've seen them. And, uh, and then you have your internal metaphor, the metaphor of it, which is your internal experience, which is different for everybody. So you, and that's the way I look at that, these things. And that's, that's, that's how I create work. If it's not working, I say, are these things in balance? Because what has to happen for me is the vibration of space. And when I was a kid, my mother was a member of the Museum of Modern Art and we used to go there for lunch. And I would look at these works and some of them, they were going like this. The, the works with you know, sculpture or painting, some of them would just vibrate the space around them. I, I always found that so magical. And it wasn't until I finished Horace Callan's course that I began to understand uh, what that was about. And uh, now I am starting more or less, what is that now, 40, 50, 71, 50 years ago? Um, uh, that, so I'm looking at this uh, picture of a ballet dancer and, and I walk up to it and I'm having my experience of a, a girl I knew who danced ballet as I'm looking at that. And somebody else may have their own experience of having danced ballet, everyone has their, but I'm, I'm, I'm having that experience and I'm thinking, I'm looking at this picture and I'm good close and all of a sudden it dissolves into just blobs of paint, you know? And, and it's, all of a sudden I'm just seeing it as paint. And I step back and there's that image of the ballet dancer. And then it's all seems to be simultaneous and it's vibrating. And that vibration is like the way an old movie projector worked, where you're seeing like at 30, 24 frames a second or whatever it would be, and there's a slight flicker on the screen. And because it's one, well, the flicker is that shift in perception from the image to the object, to it's just paint, it's a ballet dancer, to the internal experience. So it all seems simultaneous the way a movie seems to be continuous, but there are, so for me, if my work doesn't feel magical, I say, what's wrong with it? Is the image not strong? Is the metaphor not strong? Is the material not strong? Are they not balanced to each other so that that happens? And it doesn't have to happen. I do work that doesn't have much metaphor. It has a strong material and image and that's decorative art. And I love it. I love decorative art. I do a lot of, you know, geometric book bindings and things like that, that are wonderful material and image, but not so much about metaphor. And there are ones that are um, very little material. Uh, you look at a picture in a magazine of the Mona Lisa, you're looking at uh, image and you're looking at metaphor, but the material isn't there. You're looking at an illustration. There's good illustration. You know, a lot of photographs have that. Photography in general has that problem of not being illustration of creating that vibrating space. And photographers go to great lengths in printmaking with platinum and palladium and, and different kinds of paper they print on and this and that to create a activated surface, you know, so that it brings the viewer back to the reality of its piece of paper with uh, silver on it. <laughs> and so it's that, uh, so for me, that's, uh, so there are very, very many methods. Then there's the socially involved aspect of it. Does this work involve a current social issue or a past or a universal social issue that uh, it's bringing? So there's lots of critical paradigms that you can bring to the work and uh, different works are going to bring different critical paradigms depending on what the goal of the work is 
what the intended or who the intended audience is and uh and the like and do you think if you are an artist you have to bring all of that or some of that can you just be an intuitive artist searching around for a pleasing image and a good craftsman and yet create something deep do you need to be versed in all the theory as, as i said uh if you have a str strong image and uh a a strong material you can have good decorative art you know you know does, does you then get to the question is is it good and uh, my late friend rose slifka who for 25 years was the editor of craft horizons magazine which was a great magazine uh that really delved into everything had a whole bunch of sessions where uh i was on this panel of four people it was uh me and uh, pete volkus and what's his name who does the glass with one eye and um you know the um there was a uh four of us discussing the art craft connection you know like is it art or is it craft you know all these things and these were people who were like you know craft artists and after she then went on the american craft council which published the magazine switched to the glossy magazine format from the intellectual magazine format she left and started craft international magazine with the world craft council you know the the, the politics of art publishing but i said to her rose so after all that what conclusion did you come to uh is it art or is it craft and you know and she said i'll paraphrase picasso if it's good, it's art. If it's not, who cares? <laughs> okay, so you need to make it first and then decide. Or you need to make it first and sell it to someone who's decided. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it seems nowadays to sell it, you need to be able to talk about it. Exactly why. I think it. I, I think it's really, really important. It uh, like every decade. I haven't been interested in art for that long, but even during that time, being able to talk about your art has become much more important. Uh, not if you can't explain it to people, people often won't take that time to uh, to pay attention to it. Why would anybody um, watch your show if, if if nobody was saying anything? <laughs> So, so coming back to uh, uh, to 1974. Oh, Bleecker Street. Oh, why was I on Bleecker Street uh, uh, writing down the phone number on this empty storefront's window? Oh, I was on my way to CBGB, which was a uh, punk rock club at the end of the street at the Bowery, um, to see Patti Smith and television. And, uh, uh, you know, the problem was I was living in my apartment in Queens and you know, at two o'clock in the morning to go home, it was a two hour trip to, you know, wait for the subway and get the, wait for a bus or walk the, the 20 minutes, uh, you know, from the subway station at two in the morning. You know, it was a hassle. And I'd been thinking about the Center for Book Arts. I would made some attempts to get it going. I had my three, I had three apprentices who were working in my apartment in Queens. And um, I was doing that and I saw the for rent sign and I said to myself, you know, if I started the Center for Book Arts here, I could put a bed here and I could sleep here and I wouldn't have to take the subway home to Queens at two in the morning after I go to CBGB's because I went there a lot. And, <laughs> you know, because uh, and so um, so I did. And I called up and the landlord came down. And as I said, it was a recession. 
And uh, so the rent was cheap and nobody was wanting the store. And it was a derelict neighborhood, literally a derelict neighborhood. This is right off the Bowery. This is where the derelicts were, the, the alcoholics who lived in the street and you know, who across the street, they would go to the Loretto, Lady, a lady of Loretto church for their fumigations and to pick up their social security checks. And, you know, and there's a, it was that kind of neighborhood. And I said, this is perfect. And I brought my fiddle down there and I, to meet the landlord and I was wearing my cutoff denim hot pants with my red oasis goatskin heart on the seat of the pants and my red tank top and my fiddle. I meet the landlord, you know, he, he wants anybody to rent the place, even someone who looks like that. And so I played the fiddle there and it sounded good. I figure if a place has good sound, it'll be a success. And that, that's, I, I had done the same thing with my storefront in, in Queens. Uh, I, I listen to a place and it tells me whether that's the right place or not. You know, every, it's all metaphysical, you know. So uh, it's, um, so that's what happened. And that became the center. I brought my three apprentices there. We spent uh, a month getting it ready. Uh, he gave us a, a month free. That was the month of August. We sanded the floor We moved in all the equipment. I had stuff that I had stored in my friend's uh, loft in Brooklyn. Uh, I'd, when I closed the shop, I had, I had my eight by 12 Chandler and Price. I, I had the uh, cabinets of, uh, I had bought from a typographer that had gone out of business. I had bought uh, a couple of uh, double standing cabinets of, of uh, you know, good lead type that had only been used to take proofs, you know, that were then used for offset printing, which is the way it was done. So when they went out, you know, as other typesetting methods came in, the lead type was auctioned off for almost nothing. The presses too, you get the presses for nothing in those days. Nobody wanted them. But um, so anyway, so I outfitted the Center for Book Arts and set up an exhibition and opened the doors. And uh, 47 years later, um, here, um, let's, uh, 47 years later, we've got, um, Center for Book Arts, go to centerforbookarts.org and you can look at uh, the exhibition history. So over the last 47 years, we put on, I mean, the exhibitions are wonderful. There's a great exhibition on now and more, more good ones are coming. But uh, I mean, you could take all the classes and just about anything you want that has to do with book arts. You go to the exhibitions, um, you can go to the exhibition archive by click, uh, clicking there or you can, you can shift, uh, Okay, and then you can go there. So I changed it to past exhibitions. You see, there are now 304 past exhibitions up on the site that you can go to, you know, and you can see exhibition catalogs. And uh, I posted one on your uh, Discord um, yeah, yeah, just yesterday, yeah. right? Uh, to the effects of time that I did some time ago. That was a great exhibition of, you know, uh, uh, go, to, go to their iBookbinding Discord channel and take a look at that. So it's yeah, absolutely. Everybody go to this Discord channel. Yeah. Post a link to your Discord channel so people can go there. Yeah. Yeah. It's we'll really, do. it's, you know, it's that, that will be a, a, that will become a good forum uh, in time as more people get on Discord. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, so that's how the Center for Book Arts came to be. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Richard, for this talk. I also wanted to say thanks to you for supporting us on Patreon. Everybody should support you on Patreon. It, it's, uh, it's very important that you can afford to do this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, th thanks a lot for that. And I should say that uh, all the money that comes from Patreon goes to editing of this video. So uh, that's 
not like we are profiting from that <laughs> even more we have to add our own, own money to to do all this uh, stuff with uh, with our project uh, so if you if you like what we do and uh, you are considered helping us in any way please check the link below in the description pledges start with only one dollar one euro one pound depending on where you live or if you have more money start with a hundred dollars or a thousand uh, they really uh, are doing <laughs> good things with it and if you have the money there are very few places you're going to put it uh, and they'll do something special for you if you do that that's absolutely true we'll we'll finally find some way to you know get even and uh, thanks to all of our watchers uh, viewers uh, thanks to members of our community you can uh, see these the future videos uh, on our youtube channel and you can uh, listen to this podcast on our soundcloud account and our podcasting platforms you will find all the links below uh, you will find links to the objects, to the pages describing the objects we talked about and to Richard's website uh, uh, in the description as well. And uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.